Thank you, singers, musicians. God bless you. Uh, we started a series a couple of weeks ago, Character Sketches, where we have looked at Bible characters and we have seen how their lives uh, just embodied the truth of Scripture and how we can learn from them. I hope you've been blessed by the life of Josiah. Amen. And then last week, the life of David. This week, we have um, a woman Bible character, and all the women said amen. Uh, the woman Esther, and we have a woman preacher going to preach on Esther this morning. Amen. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you a woman of God. Her testimony of deliverance from drug addiction has helped countless addicts find their way out of addiction into the freedom of Jesus Christ. Her faith and her burden for the ministry of the gospel has caused her and her late husband, Bob, to establish several teen challenges around the country. Her passion for God, for revival, has been a great blessing and inspiration to thousands of people. And my wife and I are blessed to call her a colleague in ministry, but most importantly, we call her a dear, dear friend of ours. Would you give Jackie Stradoff a great big victory welcome this morning? Thank you so much. Good morning. Lord, today, every day that we could be, right? Um, we are going to continue, as Pastor Richard said, with the um, Bible character sketches, and we are going to look at the life of Esther this morning. I, I'm really sorry that my grandchildren are in children's church, or I would march all three of them up here and show them off, and we could pray for them, right? No, but it is, I, listen, I get it, I understand. It's those of you that are grandparents, they're very special, aren't they? So different from your children. Not that you love them more. You just love them differently, right? You just see their little faces and your heart just jumps with joy. It's just the sweetest thing. It's just awesome. But anyway, Father, we thank you this morning for who you are in our lives. We thank you for your incredible love in our life, all that you have done in our lives and all you have yet to do. And Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you would anoint your words as they go forth from my mouth. I ask that you would anoint the hearts and the, and the ears of your people to hear them. And that what you have desired them to do, the change that you desire them to make, would occur here this morning for your glory, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. So our story, the book of Esther, it really, it has all the ingredients winning short story. And although God's name is never mentioned even once in the whole book, you can see God's hand all through the book on every chapter, every page that you turn. He is just everywhere. It takes place in the city of Susa, which is modern-day Iran. Susa was the capital of Persia at that time. And to give you an idea of how large the Persian Empire was, it had 127 provinces. And at that time, they ruled about 10 million people 
over about 2 million square miles, which at that time in history was half the population of the Earth. So at this time, we have four main characters in the story. And we're going to run through real quickly who they are and what the scenario was in the story. Many of you may be familiar with the book. Many of you may not. But it's important that you understand the story to look at what we're going to look at this morning. So the four main characters, first of all, is King Xerxes. And he is in his third year of rule. And he is the son of Darius the Great, who you might remember was the king over Daniel and the three Hebrew children. And then there's Haman, the Agagite, who is like the Old Testament Hitler, a very evil person, and he is second in command to the king. Then we have Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew, who is in exile, and he is from the tribe of Benjamin, and he has a position in the palace as an official. And then finally we have Esther, a 14 to 16-year-old Jewish orphan girl who has been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. So in the third year of his reign, King Xerxes holds a banquet, more like a wine fest, at his palace, which is built about 120 feet above the city in, in the mountains for all his nobles, princes, and officials of all the provinces. This banquet lasted about six months, like party on. So during the last week of the feast, the king calls for his wife to come in front of everybody so he can show off her beauty. And the queen refused to come. The king is enraged, and he banishes her. Now the king needs a new queen, so the search is on. And it's made throughout all the promises for the most beautiful virgin girls that they could find. It ended up being approximately 400 of them that were rounded up and brought to the palace. They're put into the care of Haggai, who is one of the king's eunuchs. And each of them would go through 12 months of beauty treatments, and then each one would have the opportunity to spend one night with the king, and the king would choose from them which one was going to be queen. Esther was chosen in the seventh year, and he gives another week-long banquet, really into banqueting, to show her off. In the meantime... As Mordecai sits in the king's gate, he becomes aware of a plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the two guys are executed, and it's written down in the chronicles of the palace what Mordecai had done. Haman gets promoted to second in command, and all but the king has to bow to him, but not Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow to him. Haman becomes enraged and plots not only to kill Mordecai, but he's going to wipe out the whole Jewish race. This date when this was going to occur was decided by casting lots, and Haman persuades the king through a vague and phony kind of story to allow him to sign the decree. Mordecai learns of this plot also, and he gets word to Esther, and he tells her she has to go to the king. And she sends word back to Mordecai and says, I can't go to the king uninvited because the law is if you go to the king uninvited, then you lose your head. So, unless, of course, he extends the scepter towards you. So he says, listen, all of the Jews are going to be killed if you don't go to the king. And then he utters his famous line, who knows but that you have come into the kingdom 
for a time such as this. Esther replies, okay then, you gather all the Jews and fast for me for three days and I will also fast with my maidens and after those three days I will go to the king and then she utters her famous line, and if I perish, I perish. On the third day, Esther dresses in her royal garments and she went and stood in the inner court across from the throne room where the king is seated and she caught his eye and he extended the scepter toward her. And he asks her, knowing that she wouldn't risk her life to just have a social call or hang out with him, he asks her, what is wrong? What is your request? So she invites him and Haman to a banquet, more banquets. And after the banquet on his way home, Haman encounters Mordecai again, and again Mordecai would not bow. And so Haman is so enraged that he builds a gallows on which to hang him the following morning. Well, that night the king cannot sleep, and so he calls for the chronicles to be read to him. And he's reminded of how Mordecai saved his life, but was never honored. So then Haman shows up early the next morning, and the king asks, listen, how should I honor a man that I truly delight in? Well, Haman, being Haman, thinks it's him. So he tells him all these wonderful things that he should do for this man that he wants to honor. The king says, that sounds great. Now, go do those things for Mordecai the Jew. What? I mean, just imagine the look on that face. Then Haman, Esther, and the king have another banquet the second night. And that's when she reveals her Jewish heritage and Haman's evil plot to kill her and all her people. The king is furious and orders Haman to be hung on the very gallows that he erected for Mordecai. Talk about the epitome of irony. Esther inherits all Haman's estate. Mordecai is promoted to Haman's position. The king tells Mordecai to rewrite the edict that Haman had decreed, and the Jewish nation is saved. They celebrate God's goodness by initiating the festival of Purim, which is still celebrated by all Jews today. And it's really a fun kind of a celebration. They read through the book of Esther. They dress up in costumes. And as they're reading through the book, every time they mention Haman's name, they go, Sss! and they hiss, and they stomp their feet, and then they ran noisemakers. It's really cute. It's lots of fun. So let's look a little closer at Esther, the Persian queen, a woman of courage, a woman of favor. Esther was a woman of favor. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 9, Esther is placed in the care of Haggai, and it says she found favor in his sight. Verse 15, Esther is obtaining favor in the sight of all who saw her, it said. Verse 17 says the king loved Esther more than all the other women and that she found favor in his sight. Four other times after that, the scripture says that she has found favor. Favor, friendly disposition from which kindly acts proceed to assist, to provide one with a special advantage, to receive preferential treatment. That word, as it relates to Esther, seven times in the book of Esther, more than any other book in the Bible. It's a general display of goodwill and blessing. And we all need God's favor in order to complete God's assignments in our life. 
But favor is intended to help us help others. It's not necessarily just something so that we can become self-serving. And Esther found favor everywhere she turned, from the servant Haggai to the king. Favor opened up every door for her that could be opened and caused even those who were competing against her to be of service to her. It's kind of like grease on the palm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but there is a timing to the favor of God. Psalm 102 verse 13 says, Arise and have mercy on Zion, for the time to favor her has come. God's favor brings promotion even to the least likely candidate. Psalm 8411, the Lord is a sun and a shield, and he bestows favor and honor and withholds no good thing from the righteous. Psalm 512, for you, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Favor causes supernatural increase in victory and honor and prosperity and protection and preservation. You remember Joseph. The Bible says God gave him favor through all his trials and hardships. He just kept rising to the top, no matter how hard everybody tried to push him down. And Daniel. Scripture says he was given favor with his captors, and he fared better than all the rest and also was able to interpret the king dreams through the favor that God had given him. But here's the kicker about favor. You can't earn it. It's not something that you can work for because by nature of the very word, it's a gift. And sometimes it doesn't always look like it's dispersed fairly. How many of you know that? You look at some people, some friends, some people in church, some of your coworkers, and it looks like they're really highly favored more than you. And you wonder and you try to figure it out. How come? How come? You know, and particularly when we notice that God is favoring somebody. How come? Our commentator calls it the threads of grace. In other words, it's not something you really earn. It's something that God graciously gives to you for his reasons and his purposes. I remember years ago, I heard T.D. Jakes preach a sermon called Favor Ain't Fair. <laughs> it was a great message. I still remember that to this day because it's not a character quality that you can actually cultivate, but there is something that will block favor from being dispensed to your life and that's sin. Living a sinful lifestyle will block the blessing of favor in your life. So if we can't earn it, if we can't cultivate it, at least let's try to position ourselves in such a way that it opens the door for God to extend favor toward us by living our lives with a pure heart and clean hands before God. The scripture says God will bless the righteous those that are in right standing with him with favor. Also, Esther was a woman of fragrance. Esther 2.12 says, Now when the turn of each maiden came to go into the king after 12 months of preparation, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with some sweet spices and perfumes and things for purifying women. So, I don't know about you women here, but one year of daily spa and beauty treatments? I could go for that, right? 
There were multiple fragrances, oils, powders, and ointments that were used in this process. And during the Persian period, women had what was called cosmetic burners. It was a metal dish of sorts that held perfume oils, and then it was set on like a little charcoal burner that was dug into the ground. And it was, the woman would become naked. And then she would stoop down or crouch over the burner, and she would take her robe and put it over her head like a tent. As she perspired, the pores of her skin would open up and absorb all the fragrance that was coming up from the oils. And by the time the fire died down, her body as well as her clothing was just drenched in this saturated fragrance. Perfumes were very highly prized, and they were one of Persia's major imports. And they were used to soften the skin and deodorize the body, to enhance sexual relations, to show hospitality or honor a guest by pouring oil and perfume over their head or their feet, like the woman did when she anointed Jesus the week before his burial. Each girl would have been customized with a scent that complemented her particular body chemistry. And how many of us have experienced that the same fragrance on one of us doesn't exactly smell the same on the other? You get a perfume, it smells really good on them. Oh, what is that? And then you get that, and then you wear it, and it's like, eh. You know, just doesn't smell the same, right? So, but we ladies, we do like to smell nice, and although some of us are more sensitive to odors than others, still, if we're on a bus or we're on a subway or we're sitting next to somebody in church and they have a body odor, it's kind of like, ugh, right? We may even want to change our seat. And the foul odor is offensive to our nostrils. And there's times in our lives when you and I, we stink. And we have odors of bitterness and unforgiveness and pride and jealousy and rebellion and all kinds of things that just really put off the spirit of God. But the funny thing is that we can't smell it. It's like when somebody smokes. They can't really smell it. But if you're a non-smoker, when you walk into the room or you get into a car of a smoker, you can smell it right away. It's so obvious because you just can't cover it up with some, you know, a few breath mints and a little hit of the Chanel number no. 5. It just stinks. Well, the Holy Spirit is repelled by the smell and the stench of sin. It will keep him at a distance from interacting with you and blessing you and granting you favor on your life. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4 says, Don't let your adornment be merely outward, like hairstyles and gold jewelry or wearing fine clothes, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know, Peter talks about a beauty that goes far deeper than our skin, than what we can see on the outside. Our inner beauty reflects a gentle and quiet spirit, godly character that is loving and kind and full of grace. And those things to God as well as the people around us is profoundly attractive. We can't all fit the prototype of what our current society says is physical beauty. 
but every single one of us, no matter our age, our size, our coloring, can cultivate what God considers to be real beauty, the kind of beauty that will not fade with age but becomes more radiant with every passing year. How many of you know women like that that have known God their whole lives and served God their whole lives and it just seems like every year they get more and more beautiful to you even though to the world it may look like they become less and less attractive. All of the girls in that harem were beautiful. They would not have been selected and brought to the palace if they were not. It was a requirement. But Esther... Esther had a beauty that extended beyond her physical appearance to a place that touched the king's heart and drew his affections toward her. We too want to draw our king's heart and his affections toward us, and that can happen when we cultivate the fragrance of love, peace, joy, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those qualities emit an aroma that our king cannot turn his face away from. And then Esther was a woman of fortitude. Esther 4.16, if I perish, I perish. You know, timing in life can be everything. There are times to remain silent and go with the flow. And there are times to boldly move forward and stop up the dam. Who knows, her cousin Mordecai asked, but that you have not come into the kingdom for a time such as this. He offers some thoughts to her for consideration. They're Jews. This plot, if it goes through, will wipe out their entire race, including them. Could this one in a million chance that you ended up here as the Persian queen, I mean, think about it. What are the chances? This unknown, poor, little, nobody, orphan, Jewish girl ends up as the queen of Persia. Could this not be that you have been destined by God, that your position of influence is just not a situation of circumstance? God has kairos moments on history's clock that cannot be changed or averted. And I believe in this season we're going to see more and more women responding to the call of God on their lives. That he is equipping them with a spirit of boldness to step out of the shadows of obscurity. He's increasing the volumes of their voices to proclaim his word and his will throughout the world. We are each called to glorify God with our lives, but it's our responsibility to find out how is it does he want us to do that. You know, it's just like when Paul encountered God on the road to Damascus. Well, he was Saul when he encountered him, but Paul after he encountered him. But the first thing he did when he recognized that it was Jesus Christ who had encountered him, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He recognized immediately that his life was not his own, that God had called him or stopped him and encountered him for a reason, for a purpose that related to the kingdom of God and not to the kingdom of self. So God began to share some information with Paul, but Paul had to first get to know Jesus better. 
and he spent three years in the Arabian desert with him, and heaven only knows what took place out there, but I'll tell you what, when he came out of that desert three years later, he was one bold somebody for the Lord Jesus Christ. We each need boldness to walk in our calling. We need courage. We need fortitude, which means courage in adversity. Other descriptive words would be bravery, endurance, strength of mind, strength of character, or just simply some backbone. The Greek word is parisia, and it means outspoken, frankness, candor. In the context of Acts 29.31, when Peter and John have been beaten for preaching the gospel, and they get together and they pray, and they use this word, parisia. They prayed parisia. They prayed for boldness to go back out of that jail and preach the gospel even stronger, even bolder than they had before. To be bold is to be confident in him. Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are bold as a lion. Courage, the ability to do something that frightens you. Strength in the face of danger. Before Esther put her life on the line, she encouraged herself and strengthened herself through prayer and fasting. She positioned herself in all humility to hear from God. Esther 4.16, Esther told Mordecai, gather the Jews in Susa and fast for me for three days and I and my maids will fast as well. And then on the third day, I will go to the king and if I perish, I perish. You know, that sounds like a simple thing to us. I think sometimes when we read from that, yeah, if she perishes, she perishes. But the threat of danger to her life was very real. She may have never even seen the king extend that scepter to anybody. And I can't help but believe that as she marched, trembling to that, inner court, standing there, heart beating wildly, not knowing what kind of mood would he be in today? Is he going to just follow protocol? Is he going to do what everybody's going to expect him to do? I mean, the chance of her losing her life was very, very real. But she was committed to a cause she was committed to the freedom of her people. She was committed to what was right and willing. This young girl was willing to risk her life and take a chance of turning the king's favor toward her. You know, the Bible says that God holds the king's heart in his hand like channels of water, and he turns it any which way he chooses. That's amazing. There is not a heart on this earth that when put in God's hands that he cannot turn it and change it to whatever he chooses to do. Well, fasting, as we know, is a spiritual discipline, and we should remember that it's a tool that God has given each of us to manifest breakthroughs in our lives. It's not the fast that I have chosen, God asks, 
to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke, Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not what I have chosen, a tool that I have chosen for you to get deliverance, to get freedom, to get strength, to lift the burdens? But fasting also strengthens our spirit and releases wisdom and direction and strategies and revelations from God. It helps to change our character and it fosters humility. It purifies our hearts and transforms our minds, which we really need to do sometimes because we're often stuck in traditional mindsets that hinder us from walking in our calling and not stepping out more in faith and trusting God to do the impossible in our life. Esther was alienated from her family and friends and everything that was familiar to her and forced to adopt to a pagan Persian culture in order to survive. We have all had to face some type of crisis in our lives. And there are times when our sense of self and our, our true identities are tested and it's especially important during those times that we hear what God says about us and not what other people are saying about us, and not even what we are saying about ourselves. But who does God identify us to be? Who are we in the eyes of God? Because at the end of the day, it's all that matters. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks about you, your coworker thinks about you. The only thing that matters at the end of the day, my friend, is who God thinks you are. Amen? In our weakest moments, God can give us our greatest strength, as he did for Esther. The fate of a nation laid upon the small, weak shoulders of a little Jewish girl who had just been going with the flow, trying not to rock the boat. And we all come to crossroads of sorts, don't we? Points of opportunities for us to go higher with God to take a step toward our destiny or to shrink back and allow ourselves to fall back into the status quo and just carry on with life as usual. Destinies are shaped by choices, my friend, by my choices, by your choices. And when faced with defining moments, we realize that God is placing an offer on the table for us with our name on it, but will we sign on the dotted line? He opens a door, and can we say with Esther, I'm going in to see the king, and if I perish, I perish. If there ever was a time to stand up and be counted for what is right, for the sake of our God and his righteousness, friends, it is now. America has become morally bankrupt, and that's not just a Christian opinion. A Gallup poll was released in June of this year that reported 50% of Americans believe this country's moral values are poor. They were rating honesty, respect for the law, sanctity of life, and traditional sexual morality. America no longer looks to the Bible for truth or moral guidance and increasingly redirects traditional values once defined us by our founding fathers as a nation. God's truth no longer matters 
to the majority of the American people. In fact, you may hear them say, this is kind of like a, a, a little phrase that goes around now that says, they'll tell you something that's going on or, or how they're going to respond to a situation, and they'll say, that's my truth. You heard that? Yeah, that's my truth. Yeah, I'm moving in this direction or whatever, and I'm doing this and that because that's my truth. God doesn't care what your truth is. He's only interested in one truth, and that's his. Your truth means very little to him. Unless your truth lines up with his truth, then you're all set. Otherwise, you got a problem. Listen, I understand the times and the cultures have changed as far as style and linguistics and roles, etc. I'm not expecting Christian women to walk around with a bun twisted on their head and no makeup, no jewelry, skirts down to their ankles and having no opinions of their own. But do you know what has not changed? The moral code that God has laid out in his book and how we are to live our lives before him. That has not changed. The Ten Commandments are still the basic guidelines for living rightly before him. And oh yes, I understand we have grace now through the cross and the New Testament and the New Covenant. But God still calls us to keep the laws of holiness and holy living because he is still a holy God. And he still tells us, be ye holy as I am holy. Because without holiness, no one is going to see God. Pastor Richard was telling me yesterday about, um, we were talking, he mentioned his brother Anthony. Um, I, we were talking about how long ago his parents had passed. And then he told me when his brother Anthony had passed. And he said, you know, it's funny. Even in his own lifestyle, his favorite song was, I hunger for holiness. You know, even when we're not the desires to live right, something in us that God has put there that causes us to hunger for the right thing, for the holy thing, for the good thing. Stand up for what is right, even if you have to stand alone. What can one woman, what can one person do? Well, we just saw Esther save a whole nation. On December 1st, 1955, a black woman was riding on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama and refused to give up her seat to a white man. It sparked a boycott of the bus system. 17,000 other people joined her. And after 13 months, the Supreme Court brought down a decision that segregation on public transportation system was unconstitutional. One woman. Was there not a cause? In Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, an overworked and underpaid textile worker named Crystal Sutton had enough of the awful working conditions and grabbed a piece of cardboard and wrote the word union on it, stood up on her work table and held it high. One by one, 
the machines in that factory were shut off until it became dead silent in there. In 1974, they became unionized. One woman changed the whole venue of the textile union. You can see it in Norma Ray. It's an awesome movie. It's a really great story. In 1429, a teenaged, God-fearing French girl led the armies of France against the oppression of the English, inspired by a vision from God. And those victories placed the crown on the head of Charles VII to become the king of liberated France. Joan of Arc paid for that victory with her life, as many warriors have. But was there not a cause to free her country? One girl. What difference can one life make? I would say it can change the course of history and improve the life of countless people. It may seem like God has not involved himself in our moral decay, that he is silent, or worse, that he is uncaring. But believe me, as in the story of Esther, he is steadily moving behind the scenes. He is orchestrating his plans for righteousness to prevail and make no mistake about it. There may be setbacks, there may be battles lost, but I tell you today with all confidence that God will win this war. God always wins. God is sovereign. God is not threatened by what is happening in America, nor is he surprised or taken off guard. God has a plan. God has a plan to recover what belongs to him. And we are going to see it. We are going to see an end time revival like you have never imagined or dreamed or seen in your lifetime. They are going to fall into the kingdom by droves. And the gospel of God, and I'm not talking about a watered-down gospel where we turn our head from sin and we call it a mistake. No, sin is not a mistake. Sin is sin, and it's rebellion against God, and it will be squashed. And God himself, God himself will rise up a sleeping church rise up a sleeping church to become a giant in these last days. And I don't know about you, but I am so excited to be a part of that church and so excited about what God is going to do in these last days. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not discouraged by them. I'm not going, oh, no, what's going to happen to America? America is going to be risen back up again by an almighty, holy God and he is going to use his people to do it. Amen? Yes. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it through his people, from those that he has chosen and those that have chosen him. He's going to do it through the Mordecais who will not bow down to what is wrong. He's going to do it through the Esthers who will stand up for what is right. God always has a remnant. God is never left without resources that he needs to fulfill his plan. Thank you, Jesus.
Martin Luther made a very famous statement. He said, here I stand. <laughs> here I stand. As he stood in front of the Roman church, daring to challenge their authority and their theology, telling them, no, it is by faith alone through Jesus Christ that salvation comes. He says, here I stand. I can do no other. Nothing else I can do. I've seen the truth. I know the truth. I have to stand for what is right. I have to stand for what is true. God's truth. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And the church would have loved to have killed him but they had to settle for excommunication. And through that one man came the Protestant Reformation and every faith outside of the, of the Catholic faith, of the Roman, Roman Catholic Church faith. Let us, let you and me, be strong and of good courage. As I was with Moses and Joshua, and so many others, so I will be with you. Yes. If you're here today, and possibly you're here and you don't know Jesus personally as your Savior, and maybe you're a person who struggles with sin or challenges in your life, and you wish somebody could step in and really help you, and you wish somebody could step in and really change the situation, I can promise you he can, and he will, if you will allow him. It's easy to come to know him. He's made it so simple for us, really. We admit to him that we can't live life on our own. We admit to him that this all can be just too much. <laughs> And we really need supernatural help to get through life. We confess to him that we know we have sinned. We've missed the mark. We've messed up. We've done some things that aren't right. And we declare that we believe that he is the son of God. The son of God who was crucified for us was dead and buried, but rose again on that third day, hallelujah. And that he reigns and lives forevermore today to interact with his people, those that have chosen him, to continually cleanse us, keep us on track, assist us, encourage us, love us, take care of our needs. If you need him that way in your life this morning, when we open the altar, come forward so we can pray with you. Be the best decision you ever made in your life. I made the decision almost 49 years ago. And he's never left me. walk with him has been an absolute joy. He's been so faithful. Please don't miss out on that in your life.
And if you're a person here today who may need the favor of God in your life, we can pray with you this morning that God would extend more favor to you. Maybe there's something in your life you need to get right first in order for God to open up that door of blessing into your life. But he's here this morning to do that for you. Maybe your life's gotten a little bit stinky and you want it to be fragrant again. You want when people see you and they're around you, they can smell the fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, know, knowing him is one thing, but looking like him is something else. It's looking like him. It's acting like him. It's treating people like him. That's what causes people's heads to turn and to say, what is that about you? And if you're a person who needs more courage, you're facing situations in your life that require you to be bold, whether it's something at work or something in your family where you know in your heart God's been asking you to speak up, to say something against that because it's wrong, to speak up and stand up for what is right. You know that he's asking you to be one of the Esters in this last day, to speak boldly without compromise the truth of God. Then come. We're going to have some time at the altar. We'll just pray with you. If you have other needs, you have a healing, you need some help in financial supply from the Lord. He's here. Don't miss the opportunity to connect with him. Allow him to minister to you and touch your life here this morning. God bless. Thank you, Jesus. We have heard a word from God this morning, and it's so important that we take this time to process it in our spirits. I'm going to ask you all to stand. Rachel's going to lead us in a chorus, but take this time. Take this time to talk with God. Take this time to bring every every care, every need, every everything that God has stirred in your heart. Let's seek the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. Please don't leave this place without doing some business with God this morning. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray, and Rachel's going to sing. We're going to close this service, but that's for those that need to go. But again, I believe you've heard a word from God. And I believe we could allow religiosity, we can allow just our routine and the timetable just to, to affect. But we have to push through that. We have to push past that. If, we're gonna, if this word is going to truly resonate within our spirit and change us in our very heart, we've got to take time to call on God. We've got to take time to respond to the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this wonderful message. Thank you for this time of gathering together as the people of God. 
Lord, we're all at different places in our spiritual journey, but we've heard a word that is beckoning us to take another step. We've heard a word that is calling us to move closer and further and higher in you. And so, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would just, just convict people, would just, God, confront people, would just tug, tug on people's hearts, Lord, that we could have a few moments in your presence, God, that we can do business with you in these final moments of this church service, God. Father God, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would confirm your word to every life in a powerful way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Rachel sings, would you move out of your seat? Would you find a place of prayer, whether it's at your seat or at the front here? Kneel at your seat. Spend some time talking with God in Jesus' name. Amen.